0: We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world.
1: Across the world, uh, on the internet, at michaeldukeshow.com, where uh, I have the uh, links to the audio-only live stream to the... uh, Podcast available pretty much wherever you find podcasts, including iTunes, Google, and uh, Spotify. And, of course, uh, links to all our social media sites as well, where we simulcast the radio show every day, uh, including on Facebook and YouTube. And also broadcasting across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or translator. FM Translator. For those of you who are wondering, good morning and welcome to Thursday. It is uh, just another beautiful, beautiful day. Although today, (laughs) I mean, the weather cannot make up its mind. Yesterday, near whiteout conditions uh, for uh, halfway to Anchorage uh, this morning. And uh, then last night it was hailing hailing these little tiny snow pebbles and now this morning it's uh 37 degrees outside (laughs) right now so it can't make up its mind it just cannot make up its mind but that's okay uh i think that um i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that i think that winter uh is finally coming to an end i maybe i just jinxed it for everybody Maybe that means that the 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 marmot went back into the hole. The gopher went back into the hole for go, groundhog, marmot, gopher, whatever it is, went back into the hole for one more week. But uh, I mean, I I think I think it's coming. Uh, I think it, I think it's coming. Uh, so we'll see uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, that is uh, what's going on. Um, it uh, is a. Uh, very very interesting day today. We got a we got a full boat uh, going on uh, this morning. We are going to cover just a couple of the headlines that are going around. There is some cr- crazy stuff happening uh, in the school districts that we're going to talk about this morning, um, and then we're going to uh, dive right into it with JD to who is the uh, <clears throat> former managing editor at reason and he's now a contributing editor at reason magazine. Um, he had an article that he wrote, um, just, well, I guess it came out just yesterday. Um, because I subscribed to his newsletter, the rattler, which is an email newsletter. Uh, that means I get to see JD's newest stuff, uh, which is so cool. Um, but he's talking about the urban rural divide And really what he's talking about in many ways is the uh, polarization of of things in America and how this urban-rural divide, which used to be known as the the hicks and the slicks, right, back in the 70s, is just – it's just exacerbated. It's just going more and more and more and further and – how do we fix it? In his mind, this is not something that can just be wished away. Anyway, we're going to have a discussion with him about this. This is a great article over at Reason, which I am posting links to in the chat room right now. Um, so we're going to uh, um, we're going to be talking about that this morning with JD Two in hour one, and then in hour two, um, we will be uh, talking with. State Senator Mike Shower. I mean, at this time, I, I mean, at this time, um, uh, he 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 says he's going to be here for reals, for for reals. He says he's going to be here, so we're hoping to uh, hear from him here in hour two, and we'll sit down and and uh, be talking about it and everything else. So that's what's going on. Uh. <clears throat> So it's a, it's an interesting uh, it should be an interesting show this morning and uh, we'll we'll see what we'll see what happens from here. I mean, if 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 nothing else, we may have a very interesting open line open form segment for hour two. If for some reason uh, you know it doesn't happen, we we might have some interesting stuff. Um, all right, well, let me. Um, let me take a look here. I got a couple stories, stories, um, but the one that is dominating right now is a story about something that's going on inside of the <clears throat> Anchorage school district. And it may have ramifications uh, further across the state. Um, the it, it here's, and here's what's interesting. The ADN, uh, and KTUU, which are probably two of the main outlets, spoke uh, focused specifically on Anchorage. Both have stories on this, but the stories say really say nothing. Um, the Alaska Beacon, which is more of a statewide outlet, uh, d- doesn't even seem to be mentioning it right now. But Must Read Alaska has has got the dirt, and it is dirt, man. It is dirt. Let me read you. This is the this is the this is the blurb from Alaska's news source, KTUU. The principal of service high school has been placed on administrative leave, according to the Anchorage School District officials. Principal Alan Wardlaw will be replaced by acting principal Imates Azam as the district begins a, quote, investigation into community concerns, unquote, surrounding Wardlaw according to an email sent out to service high school families and staff on Wednesday. We understand you have many questions as we work through this matter. We will provide updates in a timely manner when we can. Because this is a personnel matter, we can't comment further at this time, said Kirsten johnson Strempler, the school district's senior director of secondary education, in an email. That's it. That just that there he's been placed on administrative leave. And they will keep you updated. Um, The ADN has a little bit more in the article. Said that he's been placed uh, on leave based on what the district called community concerns. That they initiated an investigation into the concerns involving the principal. According to the spokesman, uh, MJ Tim. Tim refused to provide any further details about the concerns raised, saying they're part of a personnel matter. He also wouldn't confirm the nature of the investigation. Wardlaw was hired by the district in 2015. He's been a principal at Service High since 2021 and worked as an assistant principal and teacher at Clark Middle School. Uh, Officials announced its change in the message, again, going back to the email from Kirsten Johnson-Strumpler and the district's senior director of secondary education, and that they are installing the acting principal. And that's pretty much it. So, the, I mean, <clears throat> it says a lot while saying nothing. Um, a lot while saying nothing is basically what they have going on here. So then you peel over to Suzanne Downing and must read Alaska. And she had a story that came out early yesterday that started talking about this. Um, And the story goes something like this. Screenshots of text messages said to be between school administrative employees at Service High and Clark Middle School are swirling through social media in Anchorage. When asked how the district intends to handle the situation and whether to put any of these school administrators on administrative leave uh, while the investigation is conducted, uh, the must read had asked the school district how they intend to do that. Uh, First, they said that they were ignored and then finally saying that MJ Tim acknowledged the questions and said they were looking into the matter. In short, the messages appear to indicate that a love relationship gone sour has resulted in the exposure of text messages between two or more people that can be seen as career ending. Parents have asked the district how it intends to address the highly unsavory messages which are accusations that even involve illegal drugs used by senior school officials. Uh, Parents had reported that they had been ignored as well. Text messages include crude references to women, uh, the use of words that I can't even say on the air. I guess the only one that I could say is whore, right? That's the only one that I could say on the air. There are several of them. Let's just put it that way. Teachers have gotten the text messages sent to them, and students and service high school have seen the messages as well. Uh, Must read actually received some of the uh, uh, received uh, copies of several of the messages themselves. Uh, then the updated story came out, and again, folks, all you have to do is look at this and realize. I mean, we live in kind of a broken world. There's no doubt about it. This would be reason number four hundred and. Eighteen. Why I would really suggest that if possible, you find an alternative way to teach your students, whether it's homeschooling or learning pods or whatever it is. This probably makes a lot more sense. The updated story <clears throat> gets into it even a little more. Um, the school after the suspension of the principal ward law. Uh, then put out their concerns and said that they were swapping back and forth and getting things scored away and the investigation is ongoing. Uh, The allegations evolved after several days after a person posted text messages purported to uh, to be between Wardlaw and a woman who was not his wife, but who is also employed by the district. After students started passing around sorted text messages on social media, especially over Snapchat earlier this week, Several parents contacted Rep. Jamie Allard, who serves on the House Education Committee. They said they were getting no answers from the school district and they wanted to know what's going on because their children were being exposed to some pretty raw material. Must read had reported that those text messages um, uh, in the previous story that were by Tuesday night being shared throughout the Anchorage School District. The administrators had taken the appropriate steps, blah, blah, blah. The text messages full of demeaning and grotesque sexual remarks pertaining to educators having what are evidently sadomasochistic bondage play, extramarital sexual relations using illegal drugs, and texting demeaning messages to each other, including um, direct sexual accusations. Uh, I mean, this. this Wow, you scratch the underbelly, and guess what comes up from the mud? Um, This is uh, pretty salacious, and I have not seen the messages. I've already seen a couple people in the chat room said that they've actually seen the messages and that they are uh, disturbing, um, and that this may have further reaching implications than just service high. Uh, That's troubling. And as I said again, this would be recent 417 why I would suggest that – I mean not that there's bad – not that all teachers are bad. Not that all administrators are bad. But the fact that this is the kind of exposure that we have and we've created this kind of – Godlike thing where we're supposed to tell all our kids to just trust in their their teachers and their administrators and that they're supposed to listen to them and be – it's it's a little disturbing. A little disturbing to say the least. When you have uh, what is a very apparently very unhealthy relationships being aired out in public, that's probably not the place that I want to send my kid. I'm just saying it, just saying it like that. Anyway, uh, we'll see if we have time to talk about that in hour two. But right now, I, I want to get over here and talk about maybe some solutions to the problems instead of uh, wallowing in the muck of the problem. How about that? J.D. Tuccioli from Reason Magazine is up next. We're going to continue with him here in just a moment, talking about the divisiveness in America. Is there a solution? The slicks and the hicks? What's going on? We're going to continue right after this on your home for common sense, Liberty Bay's free thing and radio.
0: What is that? Common sense
1: regularly heard on American radio. Man, uh, I mean, I just feel dirty reading that story. I mean, just like, and not not a good, yeah, not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. Uh, again, if you needed any more reason why you probably should find an alternative education method for your kids, just get a hold of, I mean, I was reading, I wasn't even reading the actual text. I was just reading some of the. Synopsises of the text and i felt dirty i mean like wow that's mm. um all right uh let's see nice to have friends around so are you trying to serve tannin on middle school has something going on um um assistant principal um i mean there's Service Clark Diamond Tanana all have major issues going on from drugs to pedophilia. I didn't see anything about pedophilia, but it's 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 crazy. It's it's crazy. Um, I I see that there's a lot of comments in here that I I can't even I can't even catch up with. All right. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, this is a really great reason says David to testify on HB 105 the parents the parents excuse me per, the parent the parents the parents rights in education. It's going on today in House Education. What time is that David? Tell us what time that uh, testimony is this morning and we'll try and get folks over to it. All right, let me go over to um, the green room and get things squared away. I see that my friend JD2 is hanging out with us. Uh, he's already up in the green room and let's, uh, let's get, uh, let's get going on this morning. Good morning, my friend. How are you? Good morning to you. Doing well. Thanks. Good. I feel short this morning because you're all tall and proud this morning. Got to make sure we're even here. We're going to get some going on. Um, all right. So, uh, I, first of all, thanks for coming on, uh, um, on short notice. I, uh, I read that article yesterday and I was like, that's that's some good stuff. That's some stuff that we need to hear because I've been talking about the polarization of America for the last 12, 13, 14 years. How it, you know, I remember back in my day, we didn't seem to be quite so against each other, you know, although that's not really true. I mean, you know, the, the rose colored glasses of nostalgic hindsight, we were still divided, but I just don't think that it was as, on the sleeve, right? It wasn't just out in the open as it was, and we were also more tolerant of each other, even if we disagreed. and And I think that's changed. And I think you've kind of, uh, uh, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head with this. But this is a just a fascinating article in that urban-rural divide. Now, here in Alaska, we were mostly urban, but uh, excuse me, mostly rural, but with just a little bit of urban, you know, thrown in. And it seems like those that are in some of the urban areas want to feel like they're Los Angeles or something like that—that that, you know, their their big city of two hundred thousand people. That's the big city here in Alaska. Is uh, you know is just like some of these other things. So I think it's a good time to talk about this uh, and uh, kind of look at it and uh, you know look at the solutions and and you know how decentralization is going to play a big part in this. And we're seeing that. I was watching. I was watching an uh, um, uh a YouTube video yesterday about one of my favorite authors, Brandon Sanderson. He had a hit piece written to, uh, on him by Wired magazine that was just horrific, and um, and it was one of those things where they basically just said, "Well, it's the other." They didn't like him, not because he's popular, not because he's anything else. He just didn't fit their little niche, and so they wrote this hit piece on him. And it's just like tearing other people down. We got to stop that kind of stuff. We got to find that middle ground if we can. So. Uh, we're about 40 seconds out. If you'll hold the line, we'll be uh, jumping right back into it with you here, okay? You got it. All right. JD to Chili, our guest. Oh, hey, you heard it. The Michael Duke Show, ready to go. He's got the big cup of Joe, and uh, we're all ready to uh, get things ready to rock and roll. Please do me a favor, if you would, would you like and follow the show page here on Facebook? Or if you're on YouTube, hit you the subscribe and ring the bell. Uh, and, uh, we'll, uh, you'll get notifications every time we go live. It's time to jump back into it. The Michael Duke show, common sense, liberty-based free thinking radio. Here we go. Let's do it. The Michael Duke show. Not your
0: daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy. Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. Huh. Whew. I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael
1: Dukes and the show. Not your daddy. That's right. I got five kids. I don't need any more. I'm not your daddy. It's not your daddy's talk radio. It is the Michael Duke show bringing all different kinds of viewpoints in and uh, joining me this morning to help me discuss this and more is contributing editor for reason magazine JD to Chile, who uh, is one of my favorite contributors over there at reason. Uh, And luckily enough, I've subscribed to his new newsletter or or I don't know if it's a newsletter or an RSS feed. It's called The Rattler. And basically it takes his latest works and dumps them right into your email box, which I love uh, because sometimes I just don't have time to go over to reason, you know, unless I get the nudge. And he wrote an article yesterday that was published yesterday talking about the urban-rural divide. And it starts out discussing what we talked about uh, on Firearms Friday about those two lawmakers in Tennessee that got ejected from the legislature for their grandstanding and breaking decorum rules and doing everything else over gun control. And J.D. says that's just a that's just a symptom of a larger problem. And he joins us this morning to talk about that and maybe some potential solutions. I don't know if the truth will out, but we'll find out here this morning. Good morning, sir. How are you?
3: Doing well. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, I, as always, it's my pleasure. Uh, you uh, you, and your fellow cohorts over there at Reason do such a great job, and I'm always trying to highlight you as much as I can, uh, especially outside of the mainstream media, because you guys at least tell it like it is. I may not always agree, but isn't that what's supposed to happen, kind of a marketplace of ideas where we can find things we can agree and disagree with and, and you know sharpen our arguments, so to speak? I think that's uh, what we're supposed to do. And that's really at the crux of what we've got going on here. We've got this diversity of opinion that is no longer a live and let live diversity of opinion. It is you either agree with me or you are the enemy and I must destroy you in verbally or mentally or financially or whatever it is. It is the divide that is in America. And I was just saying during the break that, you know, back in my day, uh, doing the old man thing, that we could disagree and still get along. But today, that's just not the case. And you start off with a Tennessee issue just to prove your point. So let's get started.
3: Well, absolutely. I mean, you had two legislators. Uh, there were actually three altogether who protested on the floor of the state, le- state house in Tennessee. Uh, they were in favor of gun control. Um, as it turns out, all three of them represent urban districts in Tennessee, and the Tennessee legislature is dominated by uh, rural lawmakers. The rural lawmakers are all overwhelmingly Republican. The urban lawmakers are overwhelmingly Democrat. And that's actually come to see, be the face of politics in the U.S. now, is that uh, our polarization is extreme. It is geographical, but it's not the red state, blue state thing that we often see on the map. It's really urban versus rural. And the two major political parties have, have uh, accommodated themselves accordingly. Uh, the Democrats are urban and suburban. The Republicans are rural and ex-urban, in the, the farther suburbs further from the city. Um, and we have very polarized politics based upon very different ways of life. We've also seen people sort themselves this way. And that was accelerated by COVID. I mean, telecommuting became um, normalized. So people more than even in the past were able to move from where they had had to uh, live in the past to work to where they felt more comfortable, where they fit in. Right. That's a phenomenon that's been accelerating for about 25 years. So what you have is you've got people who are trying to live by very different means, have very different values and ideologies, and they're also trying to impose each other's will on, um, on the opposing party because we have an extremely centralized political system, very top-down decision-making, uh, either by the federal government or in state capitals, imposed by whoever the victor is on uh, those who resent the rules, live in ways that make the rules kind of nonsensical. Um, And that foments conflict that, frankly, doesn't need to happen.
1: I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I I was really, I mean, again, I've often talked that there are very few silver linings to the whole COVID thing. But it did, you know, not only did it expose kind of the problems with education in the country, which you've also written about, but also uh, it did give people the ability to have some freedom to uh, you know, the, some people wanted to have a career, but to have that career, they had to live in an environment that was, you know, it was urban, ultra expensive, probably, it, you know, may not have fit in with their political viewpoints or been comfortable for what they wanted for their family. And COVID gave them that opportunity to still participate in a career that they loved, but now be able to surround themselves in, a, in environs or with people who are more like minded, um, which I think is a positive. Although we also get that siloing effect, like you said, where people are in their own little bubble and they're not exposed to any other ideas. And Facebook and other social medias are famous for this, where they'll only feed you things you like to hear instead of things you don't want to hear. Um, and that has contributed to this whole scenario as well.
3: Oh, it absolutely has. I mean, and and these the differences in views have become starker over the years. Largely because of self-sorting, and then once people self-sort, as you mentioned, they get the silo effect. They reinforce each other's views once they're among the like-minded. Um, and I don't—I don't have to guess at what they think. I mean, Pure research does a great job of polling people, and they find extremely stark differences between rural dwellers and urban dwellers. And as—and as you would guess—that you know, generally conservative views in rural areas, generally liberal views in conser- in uh, urban areas. Um, it doesn't mean that you don't have conservatives in the city or liberals in the country. Uh, you definitely do but um you you have kind of what what they call 80% counties i mean overwhelmingly uh counties that are dominated by points of view conservative generally in the rural areas liberal generally in the uh, in the urban areas and the polling shows this very starkly this shouldn't be a problem so long as people can make their own rules. But since we've taken what was originally a federal system of government, and we've turned it into a kind of an imperial top-down system, that means everyone ends up fighting for what rules are made at the central level. Um, and if they're not made in DC, they're made in state capitals that are no longer, uh, you know, small, you know, divided states, but you know they, they talk about millions of people with urban, you know, urban areas inside of, uh, of red states, um, or, Rural areas resisting uh, blue states, right? Um, so you end up with centralized rulemaking imposed on those who resent it, and very often who refuse to obey it. I and mean, you've got a lot of revolts. We've seen the sanctuary cities, uh, where you've got cities refusing to uh, in- to enforce immigration rules, and we've seen Second Amendment sanctuaries, where you've got uh, rural counties saying, "No, we're not going to enforce these gun laws." Um, and you're going you're gonna get more and more of that. Unless we go back to that original vision where the decision-making is made on the local level, my preference would be for individuals to the greatest extent possible to make their own rules. But the closer you get to the individual, not only is it more likely that you're going to have rules that people find acceptable, tolerable at least, but also if you don't find them acceptable. If the rule is made on a town level, you can do what's called foot voting. And this is something that a law professor at uh, George Mason University uh, came up with. Well, people came up with it. He simply formalized the idea and described it, which is the idea that if you don't like the local rules, get up and move. Right. That's really hard to do if you're moving from country to country. It's still difficult to be crossing a state line. It's a lot easier when you get down to the local community level. Just move across a border into another town that's got different rules, and you don't have to fight about it.
1: Again, but with this centralization happening, and again, the power moving up to the state level or whatever else, it makes it a lot more difficult when those state level rules are being laid down. One of our state senators is in the chat room and he said, Not red and blue states, but red and blue counties, right? And you mentioned that in the article. You talk about, you know, red states with a blue capital, with a blue metro area. You know, or blue states with a red urban area out there. You just mentioned that. And that's where it's at. It's that divide that's starting out there. And people who are in rural versus urban areas have completely different mindsets about the role of government, about self-sustainability, about many different issues, even going so as far as to looking down into what the school districts in these areas uh, are focusing on. You talk about that.
3: Oh, absolutely. When you poll people about what they want their kids to be taught, um, and in particular, uh, there's polling on what's called DEI, this diversity, equity, and inclusion, which becomes a stand-in right now for a big ideological fight over how race is presented, sexuality, um, you know, gender roles. Um, it's, the hot, it's the hot issue now. Once again, urban liberal areas tend to favor DEI in the school's mission statements where it's going to affect the curricula. Uh, Rural areas, generally more conservative, opposed this. Um, And there's an easy way to deal with this, which I've talked about before, which is school choice. If you don't want to fight with your neighbors over what your kids are taught, the best way to deal with that is to don't send your kids to the same place. Let the the education dollars follow the kid to an appropriate education. Um, I never had to fight with my neighbors about what my son is taught because he's homeschooled he right. learns what my wife and I think is appropriate. Right. Um, but if we'd sent him to a charter, which we did originally before we homeschooled him, if you send your kid to a private school of your choice, you don't have to engage in these battles. And that's a great model for how we can deal with a lot of other societal conflicts. Choose your own rules, live by them, and let people who disagree with you live by their own rules. This can't maybe done be done in every single way, if they, someone legalizes murder, that's going to be a problem. But most things really don't have to be done on a national level. And we knew that originally. That's why we have a federal system of government.
1: Thomas Jefferson said something uh, just 12 short years after the uh, f- uh, the signing and the and the formulation of the country, where he basically said uh, something along the lines of once the government started to draw power unto itself and, and, and concentrate the power unto itself, that was a problem. And just 12 years after that, he basically said, whoops, we screwed the pooch kind of thing. Like we, we gave it. We still gave it too much power. We tried to not give it, but it's still happening. And now it's concentrating. it. And that was, again, only 12 years after the country was formed. He could see things that were happening. And we've seen that. And then, of course, the Civil War. And I've often likened it to the fact of like before the Civil War, the, the government was like a funnel. You had all the states at the top, and the power would flow from the states to the federal government. And as soon as the Civil War was fought, they're like, nope, this is how it goes. And it turned around to be a pyramid with the federal government at the top, giving power back to the states. And now we're seeing the same thing happening in states at local communities, you know, kind of saying exactly what these communities should do and everything else. And it it that centralization, it's got to flip at some point, doesn't it? I mean, don't you think that at some point it people does. are going to— you know, push back against it?
3: It absolutely does. And I think we're seeing that pushback in the form of the sanctuary cities, in the form of uh, Second Amendment sanctuaries. We saw it even earlier with marijuana laws. Uh, Mendocino County, California, uh, the, the uh, county attorney there 25 years ago refused to enforce marijuana laws, admitted a safe haven for marijuana. There's no particular reason why a lot of these rules should not be decided on the local level. I mean, as a libertarian, my preference would be that everyone gets liberty protected for them on an ongoing basis. Everyone should enjoy the fruits of the Bill of Rights. But if we're going to have these growing conflicts, if we're going to have these irreconcilable political battles, and at the same time, we're self-sorting into geographically distinct communities of like-minded people, the solution seems to present itself as simply letting these geographic areas live by different rules in large areas of life. And you're going to find that the rules they select are going to be more amenable to the populations than they would be if they were imposed by somebody who lives and thinks very differently than those who predominate in that area.
1: Uh, J.D. Chile is our guest. He's a contributing editor for Reason Magazine. We're talking about his latest article, uh, which was just posted yesterday, that says spat among Tennessee lawmakers illustrates a national urban-rural divide. And um, it's something that we've talked about on the show quite a bit, and we need to continue to discuss it. When we come back, we're going to talk with him about how this divide cannot just be wished away. It's not something that we can just say, well... I hope it goes. And so we're going to talk about some of the solutions and maybe some of the things that we can do to help further that along. J.D. Tuccioli continues with us right here on The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, Free Thicket Radio.
0: Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael
1: Duke Show. J.D. chili is our guest here on the Michael Duke Show. Um, J.D., you know, I've been talking about this for a long time, and the problem is, part of the problem goes back to education because we have... Got multiple generations now of school students who have been taught that the in school, um, uh, either directly or indirectly, that, well, all these problems that we have these days, you know, government is the solution for all these problems. And so we've got, you know, two or three generations are basically going, well, that's a problem. Government needs to fix it instead of grabbing ourselves by our bootstraps and picking ourselves up and doing it on our own or figuring something out between neighbors or friends or whatever. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a problem that's become institutionalized.
3: Oh, it absolutely has. I mean, I, I, th- I think it should have been obvious to uh, everybody from day one that if you're going to let the governments decide, run the schools and decide what children are taught, the first thing the government is going to teach the children is that government's kind of awesome. Um, it's got a self interest in doing exactly that. Uh, whereas if you were diversified or returned to diversification of education, you're going to have a lot of points of view. And then the kids are going to uh, come up through schools run by different organizations, different individuals, their own parents. And then they'll encounter each other in the world outside, and there won't be one predominating point of view. Uh, The danger of battling over school curricula was pointed out by John Stuart Mill um, over 150 years ago when he wrote On Liberty. And he was a big advocate of education. He advocated for making uh, education of children mandatory, but he thought the the governments should not run schools at all. And he predicted that if the government ran the schools, they'd just end up being battlegrounds for the sects, various sects, that was the term he used. He almost certainly thought the battles would be between religious groups because that was predominating disagreement of his time. In our time, it's ideological groups, but it's the phenomenon he predicted. He knew this would happen. He knew that people would fight over what kids are taught. And that's if the government runs the schools and the, and they end up dominating what is to, what is presented to children in the classroom.
1: Right. Well, and so it, that was
3: a bad idea.
1: Yeah, no. And it goes not just through K-12, you know, uh, primary education. It goes into post-secondary education, too, of course, in the universities where we've seen in just the last 25 years or so that the number of uh, the balance is gone. You know, it used to be, you know, four to five uh Uh, more progressive-type professors to, like, two or three, uh, you know, conservative-type professors. And now it's 12 to 1. 12 to 1. Uh, And it reminds me of that phrase that you've heard so many times that, you know, don't be surprised when you send your kids to Rome and they return as Romans. I mean, that's—what do you expect when you send them in there and you tell them, you listen to your teachers, you listen to—they know what they're talking about, and then they come home and they start spouting off stuff that's totally antithetical to your own beliefs, and you're like— what just happened? Well, you abdicated your you abdicated your responsibility, and uh, and that's why I think it's so great. Again, the silver lining of COVID was that people have seen, in some ways, public school systems as the sham that they really are. That it's really not about education. Uh, uh, it's not really about educating the kids. It's about conserving power. It's about glomming new power. It's about you know lining the pockets. And and again, it's about more about. Uh, philosophy, points of view, and uh, and political motivations than anything else.
3: Yeah, the teachers unions have yet, obviously, uh, to reconcile themselves to that fact. Uh, re- uh, the head of the AFT uh, is is clearly still coming to terms with the fact that the gloss is off the apple when it comes to public education. But a lot of people are unenamored of it and one of the few things that all americans seem to agree on is that school choice is a good idea better than two-thirds of liberals uh, or i should say democrats independents and, and republicans and, and all the polls i've seen support school choice And if that's an area where people can agree that they should all be able to choose where their kids are educated that provides some hope because that actually then minimizes or at least reduces grounds for conflict in the future
1: well and again uh, even uh, again one of our another one of our state representatives says the Prussian model of schools and teaching we need to move away from that government is not the solution and may, many people may not understand that reference but the, the bottom line is is that uh, you know our school systems were modeled on the Prussian school model of mandatory teaching and that government is the important answer and everything else that comes straight out of uh, of the of the Prussian model and yes it is a problem It's one of the reasons why, I mean, I homeschooled. I think it's one of the reasons why you probably homeschooled, uh, because I wanted to be able to teach my kids to have critical thinking skills, to understand basic reading, writing, and arithmetic, and to understand history and their rights, civics, that kind of stuff.
3: Absolutely. Um, And the Prussian model, uh, the great book, uh, John Taylor Gatto's book, uh, was the the underground history of American schooling, I think it's called. But,, uh, yeah, the Prussian model was meant to take a country that felt that it was um, on the back foot and that was uh, losing international conflicts. and it was meant to regiment youth and make them a good uh, you know good soldiers. And that's not a good model if you want to raise independent minded, freedom-loving uh, individuals um, for a, a free country,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. All right. The ding means it's time to jump back into it. Uh, again, we're getting ready to uh, continue. With J.D. Tuchilli, contributing editor for Reason Magazine here We're going to continue to talk about this And why we just can't wish this away Make sure you like and follow the show page uh, on Facebook If you would, also if you're out on YouTube or don't have a YouTube account Make sure you go out there and subscribe and ring the bell Here we go, The Michael Duke Show The
0: Michael Duke Show. Seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <clears throat> pinch of
1: intellect. Sorry. That is humorous. Here's Michael Dukes. Continuing now with our friend J.D. Chili from Reason Magazine. We're talking about his latest article, talking which which started out as the focal point being this uh, uh, the Tennessee lawmakers who got pitched out of the legislature for... Uh, well, it was lack of decorum. It was, you know, protesting inside the chamber. It was a lot of different things. But it just highlights, again, that urban versus rural divide, which really is the um, which is really just part of the, the you know, it's a microcosm of the larger problem. Um, and it's something this divide, which is seems seemingly has gotten worse over the last uh, uh, decade and a half, two decades. Uh, it's not something that can be wished away and you talk about that in your uh, piece as well jD um, people want it to go away a lot of people would like it I mean I'd like to I'd like to be able to have discourse with people I disagree with and go out and have a beer afterwards that just seems to be more wishful thinking these days than anything else I don't know if we can wish it away
3: we absolutely can't. I mean, I think one of the things that has made these conflicts so intractable is that one side, uh, urban dwellers, have kind of been waiting for the uh, rural side to kind of dry up and blow away on the assumption that, uh, you know, these impoverished, uh, dead end, uh, you, know, you know, losers out in the country are just going to become wither and become less of a concern. Now, where the city is going to get their food and water after that, I've got no idea. But I don't think that one was thought through, and the fact is that's not going to happen anyway. There's an urbanist named Richard Florida. Um, some of your uh, some of your listeners have probably heard of him. Pretty well known for uh, studying uh, so, you know American society. He's now at the University of Toronto. And in 2018, he put out a report looking at uh, the rural urban divide, what we're discussing right now. What he found is that uh, rural areas are no less or no more uh, dynamic and diverse than our urban areas. Some are thriving, some are doing extremely well. They actually uh, in rural areas have much higher levels of entrepreneurialism than you see in urban areas. And the the startup businesses tend to last longer. So there's no way you can hope that the rural areas are gonna blow away. And that was before COVID, Made it easier for people to relocate to where they want to go, and you've since seen a decline in urban population. People have moved to mid-sized cities, suburb, suburbs, and also rural areas. I see them in my area now. They come out here and they're wondering exactly what they're going to do with that dirt road and their BMW. But they eventually adjust, or they don't, and then they go back home. <laughs> but um, uh, you know, the fact is, the rural areas are not going to disappear. So that these problems, these divisions, are actually going to deepen. Um, they're going to continue. And we have to
1: resolve them and not hope that one side simply disappears and evaporates in the future. Because they're not going to. I mean, you also talk about it's not just the rural areas that, you know, wax and wane. Some are great, some are not. The urban areas do as well. Uh, And so there has to be a synergy there. Uh, Some people are happy living in cities, living on top of each other. Some of us find that to be one of the most horrendous things we could possibly think of. Um, and so there is that. I mean, there's an a, already a philosophical divide amongst those people, but we've still got to have that symbiotic relationship. As you point out, if the rural areas dry up and blow away, where are you getting your food? Where are you getting your water? You know, and if we want to have nice things or go to see operas or plays or movies or the arts or things like that, those are more focused in many of the urban areas. So there's got to be kind of that balance between the two. And we used to have a little bit of a better balance. I mean, will it, will the pendulum swing back? Uh, wh- what's going to happen? Well, I think it will eventually
3: because the areas are dependent on each other. I mean, you need cities. They developed for a reason, the trade centers, the centers of uh, culture of arts of dynamism. Uh, you need rural areas, the centers of food of ag, you know, uh, of industry. Um, you need them both. And you also need I think, to appreciate uh, their codependence. Um, I'm originally raised and born, you know, born and raised in New York City myself, then I chose a rural area um, for this life. It was interesting is uh, Bill Bishop was a journalist who wrote a book um, that discussed much of what we're discussing right now. Uh, the Big Sort came out back in 2009, where he talked about people moving to areas where they felt more comfortable based on lifestyle but how lifestyle, because it was uh, connected to partisanship, to uh, ideology, was, was creating the polarization that we're seeing now. And that was 14, 15 years ago. He's retired now, but he's still active and he's still concerned about the issues he wrote about. He says they've deepened. He himself, uh, a few years after his book came out, moved from Austin, which is a blue city and a red state in Texas, to a small town in Texas, to LeBrand. He wanted to see what life was like there. And He actually found out that he preferred it. And that because it was a small town, because you see the same faces every day, you have to interact with people who are different than you, and you have to work with them to get things done. And it actually enforced a level of, of uh, manners and of tolerance that uh, wasn't necessary in an urban area, where you can even where you can silo even more so because of the large population, because you can self-select an urban area for like-minded people and ignore those who are different than yourself, who think differently than you that wasn't a luxury that was available in a small town where the mayor is also the clerk at the grocery store, it's something he actually pointed out in an interview last year. So um, I think that appreciation that he found by moving across the, the divide, settling in another area is something that's gonna have to come to the rest of the country because we do need each other. And appreciation would actually be encouraged if we were to decentralize power and let people just live according to their own rules and stop fighting about it. And if you want to go and make fun of people, you know, in the future by driving out to the country or driving into the city and seeing folks living in ways that you wouldn't like, that's fine. That's peaceful. And then you go back home. You live according to ways that you do
1: like. And we talk about the decentralization. And really, that's the crux of this whole matter. And we've seen a move uh, across many spectrums into decentralization, whether it's the gig economy, whether it's in the publishing industry, whether it's in, uh, I mean, just, you could just name a dozen different things that where the power has started to be, you know, decentralized away from the major conglomerates. And that needs to move in on the governmental side as well. We don't need, and this is something that Alaskans really hate. You've got some bureaucrat in some gopher hole back in Washington, D.C., decreeing what you can do, up on the charlie river up you know 150 miles from civilization 3,000 miles away in alaska and they're like this guy doesn't even he doesn't even know what he's talking about but that's the kind of problem that we have and it's not just the feds it's the state as well we need to have more of that decentralization and i think more and more people are embracing it
3: well i agree with you i mean arizonans are there right there with the alaskans i mean our water rights are controlled from dc And you can have your town or your farm dry up and blow away, depending upon a whim, um, uh, set by the uh, Department of the Interior. Um, That's a big deal. But I think the culture, as you mentioned, is shifting in a decentralized direction. Telecommuting, gig economy, uh, digital economy. The culture overall is moving away from large corporations, large communities, even permanent fixtures. I mean, we're creating these kind of networks that shift and morph according to our needs. The government isn't yet caught up. The best thing I think to, for pushing in that direction is the resistance we're seeing the sanctuary cities, the Second Amendment sanctuaries, local communities simply saying, you know what, if you like that, if you want to enforce that rule, do it yourself. We're not going to do it for you. Right. Because the feds really, and the state really, doesn't have the resources to do most of this. Uh, most of the enforcement ability is at the local level. And if a local level says, no, we're gonna opt out, it leaves the feds and the state just kind of hanging there. They can't do much about that. And the more we see that, the more pushback, um, the likelier I think that that relationship will be reconsidered and maybe we can help to move, you know, we can at least hope to move in a, a direction of decentralized power where more of this decision making is made closer to the individual.
1: I think it's funny that, you know, most of these things that are coming down from the government uh, require our, you know, our complicit compliance, essentially, uh, that we comply or that we all agree and nod our heads. But the most American of ideals is civil disobedience, and you're seeing that in many areas. And it should be the one thing that I think as Americans we should exercise more often, be civilly disobedient uh, You know, on things that are you know ridiculous laws, the Marbury versus Madison thing. If it flies against the Constitution on its face, then resist it. That's what you need to do. Um, and, we're see- again, we're seeing that in education and all these other things where people are going, well, we don't need the government to tell us what to do. We can form our own little learning pod or share a teacher or do whatever else we're doing. Doing, and all these other things that we just talked about we need to find ways to push more of the decentralization uh in every aspect of our life not just government but in every aspect of our life because overall it'll make our lives more robust it'll make the system less sustainable to cascade failure because we're dependent more on other people and you know folks around us rather than somebody three thousand miles away so final thoughts here as we get down to the last two minutes how do we how how do we how do we continue to push back and and help this idea this concept of decentralization take root? Well, what you just discussed,
3: I like the idea of normalizing even greater than we have now. The idea of just not complying. I mean, in my area, uh, building contractors tend to bid jobs and they'll do it on paper. Do you want that with or without permits? And if you if you want the permits, it's going to add two thousand dollars to the job in six weeks. It's up to you. And then it's and then if it's very common, then to say I'll skip the permits, thank you. And by and large, it's not an, it's not a problem because so many people do it that you get used to it. The inspectors just give up and and they will go away. Um, if you normalize that, do that more areas of life, you push back against the bureaucrats, you make their lives more difficult, and you frustrate them. You make them in you make them impotence. Then you bring power back to the individual, and you bring it close to yourself, and you find that you're living according to rules that you like rather than those that are thrust upon you, which ultimately I think is what we all
1: want. Uh, the whole time, again, not hurting anybody. Uh, that's the whole point, right? You're doing things that uh, Breaking yes. the Law that's really not hurting anybody anyway. And so why not exercise that most American of ideal, which is, again, civil disobedience against laws that make absolutely no sense, which is probably the vast majority of the 200,000 pages of the Federal Register uh, at this point. J.D. Chile, 60 seconds. You've also written a piece talking about education. And uh, do you prefer that high quality public education and everything else? What else are you working on here quickly? Uh, and tell us about the Rattler before I let you go.
3: Well, the, um, the Rattler is, is an email newsletter, so if you want my columns delivered to your inbox, go ahead and sign up um, in any of my columns, and it'll come straight to you. What I'm working on now, I've got a piece on negative partisanship, which is kind of an extension of what we're discussing here today. That'll go up tomorrow. And neg- negative partisanship is the idea that you choose your team, not based on who agrees with you, but uh, who you hate more and want to oppose. We're seeing an awful lot of that in our country right now. And that, again, would be solved to a great deal by living according to our own rules and not having them thrust upon
1: us. The tribalization of America continues where you find somebody you don't agree with and they became they become the them, the other that you cannot even you can't even agree with on anything. Uh, it's it's astonishing. J.D. Tuchilli, our guest, The Michael Duke Show continues up next. State Senator Mike Schauer back with more after this. JD, I I just I find this to be such a fascinating conversation because, I mean, I I, you know, you see some of the writings and it's not like things were perfect back in the day, even amongst the founding fathers. But these were guys that could scream and yell at each other, call each other hermaphrodites and everything else in the public uh, eye, write scathing pamphlets. And yet at the end of the day, they could go to the tavern and have a beer together and at least discuss the ideas. We've lost a lot of that kind of ability to have a dialogue or to uh, you know to discuss things and agree to disagree which I just find I find terrifying that people just can't say well live and let live you know okay your idea may be different than mine but we can find some common ground we like the same books or music or sports teams or whatever it is we can't find that common ground we can't even start to discuss that because you don't believe x you're dead to me or I wish you were dead kind of thing. Yeah, we made the
3: stakes too high. We made the stakes way too high and we made it too hard to walk away and say, fine, I'll just go over here and do my own thing. Um, The sides have decided, no, I'm gonna chase you and I'm gonna make you do what I want you to do. And by the way, I'm gonna reach far into your life and I'm gonna affect things that are very near and dear to to what you believe, what you value. We, you can't do that. When you make the stakes too high, there is no ability to come to a to a common ground. There's no way to compromise because you lose, and no one can afford to lose at that level. We got to lower the stakes, and we got to yeah. make it easy for people to walk away and say, "I'll just do my own thing."
1: Uh, I talk about something called the narrative. What I call the narrative, which is this belief. Primarily among progressives, although more and more I'm seeing more and more of the conservative side of the fence try to glom on to some ideas of this, but the narrative from amongst progressives is the only way that society can move forward in a meaningful way is with the direct benevolent intervention of government, right? I mean, that's the only way we can move forward as a society. We can't do it ourselves. And so, therefore, they join the government. They become part of it. They want the esprit de corps. They want to make a difference. And then they use government as a bludgeon. And it used to be that the conservatives were more hands-off about it. But now... They're like, yes, we're going to use the government to tell you what you can do in your own home or your bedroom or whatever it is. And it's it's two sides of the same coin, weighted more heavily to the progressive side these days than anything else. But still, it's a problem. Those of us in the middle who are libertarians who just want to not hurt, you know, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff, as Matt Kibbe says, You know, we just want to be left alone. And every side, it seems right now, wants to weaponize the government against people to make them think and believe and act in the way that they believe is correct.
3: Absolutely. I mean, this idea that um, someone needs to have, someone needs to live according to your vision, not their vision, is inherently totalitarian. And we've come to think of it as a progressive vision. But the national conservatives on the right now have totally adopted that. They've uh, they just changed what it, how it is that they want everyone to live. And they have a vision for how everyone else should live. They want to impose that. That's what we came to believe progressives wanted, that's what the national conservatives also want and they're now going to fight now about the mechanism of the state that they both sides need to use to coerce everybody else to living the way they want us to live that doesn't work that's again that's more grounds for conflict and if you don't learn if we don't all learn to leave other people alone to live differently than us we're going to have endless battles into the future because this is too big too diverse a country to ever be forced to submit to one vision of the good life.
1: It's time for us as Americans and as libertarians and as people who believe in you know constitutional mandates to live our own quiet rebellions in our own lives. That's really what it's about. It's just living our own quiet rebellion against the laws that make no sense and to encourage those others around us to do exactly the same thing when it makes no sense to follow those things. As you said, it's the only way for people like you're talking about the permitting in your community. It's the only way to frustrate those bureaucrats who have all that power to basically just say, well, nobody's going to pay attention to you. So feel free to issue me a citation because nobody cares. And eventually that's, exactly. that's what is going to have to happen across the country. Yeah. Learn to say with a smile. I'm not going to, I'm not going to obey that. I'm just not going to comply. Can I get you a beer? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I will not comply. Here's a brewski. Have a nice day. So that's, that's what it's going to take. JD, as always, I appreciate your point of view. I appreciate your writing and uh, I look forward to your new article. I think, I've been trying to talk about this polarization since really since kind of the start of it. Um, I've stopped focusing on national stuff, and I've started about six, seven years ago, I started focusing primarily on local and state stuff because I'm like, look, we can't make changes out in the national level. I mean, as an individual, you just have very little input on that. Where you can change it is in your community. And that goes back to that decentralization. It's a grassroots, from. it's a reverse, it's grassroots, you know, it's power from the ground up. Make the changes in your community. And then maybe we can see a change at the national level, but we need to do it. That's what we just need to do. We need to get those folks around us on board. Absolutely.
3: Start small. It's a lot less frustrating.
1: Absolutely. JD, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate it. Appreciate you coming on board. And we look forward to your next piece and uh, talking to you again soon.
3: Thanks for having me on. You take care.
1: Make sure you sign up for the Rattler. Go over to JD's article uh, there on uh, Reason.com and you can... Uh, I'm going to post the link in the chat room right there again, and you can sign up to the Rattler to get his stuff directly into your mailbox each and every time it posts. It'll just pop right there into your mailbox. So go check it out and, uh, and, uh, and find out what you got going on. All right. Uh, Mike shower fingers crossed should be joining us in just a moment. Um, he was full of apology yesterday and said that he would love to come back on and uh, be part of it. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, I'm hoping that he is uh, back at it and ready to go. We will uh, uh, we'll see here. I've sent the. Uh, I guess I should send this one more time to his email just because I can. Let um, me copy that again and I'll go over here to the email and put all that in we'll get things ready to rock and roll uh the Michael duke show common sense liberty-based free thinking radio make sure that you uh like and subscribe if you would that would be fantastic if you would wow holy cow everything got super slow all of a sudden um link and post uh make sure you like and subscribe and ring the bell and do all that stuff let's get back to it here we go Hour two of the show.
0: The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world.
1: Live around the world on the internet at michaeldukeshow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Good morning and welcome to the program. It's hour two of the big radio broadcast and we just finished up with J.D. to Chili from Reason Magazine. If you missed that discussion, oh baby, you should go back and listen to it. It was super good, and uh, I really enjoy talking. Uh, I really enjoy talking with uh, with JD and company over there at Reason. Uh, good discussion about the polarization and the divide in America and the way that we can affect that, which again includes decentralization and uh, kind of that quiet civil disobedience, living lives of quiet rebellion. Is what I like to say, um, where basically you dis- disempower many of these, you know, bureauc- bureaucrats and bureaucracies, and uh, you know, kind of just ignore them uh, because it, uh, in most of the time, it just makes no sense. It makes no sense, and again, contributes to that polar divide that we're seeing uh, across the country. Um, all right, so hour two of the program now, though, and we are ready to go. Joining us this morning um uh, look hey i'm i'm happy it's it's here it's time it's ready it's rock and roll it's state senator mike shower he joins us this morning on the program uh, to talk with us about stuff and things hey you're there what's happening
2: i'm here today how are you
1: good how are you how are you, how are you? i was getting a little worried there i was getting a little nervous there at the end how, how, how's it going my friend what's happening
2: it is slow internet service here man it's hard to get this thing working sometimes yesterday was totally my fault but today was just a slow computer day
1: okay so, all right well good yeah I,
2: wish I told you that i couldn't get my computer to even turn on so i don't know Hacked by china i guess i'm not really sure
1: this is what happens when you're hated is it everybody wants to come out there and hack you and do all that stuff
2: yeah that's correct
1: um all right well let's uh let's get an update uh and see what's uh and see what's happened it's been a while since we've had a chance to chat Again, I know you're on the outside looking in. I always picture you like that kid at Christmas time who's got his nose mashed up to the glass, looking at all the other kids playing in the toy store with all the stuff, and you're just kind of sitting there uh, with your tongue stuck to the window or whatever because it's frozen and you can't do anything. Uh, is that what it feels like, or is it? I mean, are you actually getting some stuff done? Give us a give us a give us an update here on the shower uh, hour. Well, I mean,
2: number one, I come as relaxed as I have ever been just because I don't have any responsibility for the silliness coming out of Senate. I have now determined and decided that this is, I don't know what else to call this Senate coalition, but the tax and spend coalition, my friend, that's what it is. This is all spend, 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 divine benefits for all my friends. This is uh, increase education spending. This is throw taxes out. They just did one yesterday and the blight tax. Now they're going to hammer people that have properties. I mean, it's just. You know that they don't i just like this is a tax and spend senate that's what it is um so i'm just sitting back from the outside and one part of me is very happy that i'm not associated with this at all and have no responsibility for it because three of us aren't going to stop anything they do and uh and at the same time i'm actually pretty relaxed because i can't do anything about it um i being in the minority is in its own way it's kind of freeing because before i was always under the quandary and the majority of being a part of it and having to make decisions on, Oh shoot, I don't want to vote for this. I don't like what we're doing. Oh, they're going to cut the PFD again. Oh, they're going to take the PFD. You know, it's been that battle all the time because you're part of it. And then that wonderful binding caucus where you're like, well, shoot, if I do vote for that, then I'm going against the will of the people. If I don't vote for it, they're going to kick me out and take away my ability to represent the people. Right. So you're kind of in that end. Now I'm kind of like, yeah, they've already done that. They've already thrown us under the bus and stomped on us. So I'm like, not my fault not my responsibility so in a strange way it's very this is the most relaxed i've been in the year six of being here um but at the same time like you said i'm not just sitting around doing nothing because that's the interesting part in some ways it's allowing me to coordinate and do things with others in the house the governor lieutenant governor on issues that i could not do in the majority right statutorily
1: it's kind of yeah. freeing. It's kind of freeing in that way because the shackles are off, right? You're not held to the account of if you don't do what we say, we're going to kick you to the curb anyway. They've already punished you. You're already how much more in prison could you be than in prison? Kind of thing.
2: Yeah, they've uh, they've already done that. So they they did that before we even started. So, um, so uh, one of the things we're continuing to work on is of course elections, and I'm doing that with the lieutenant governor and her people as policy and regulation, because one of the things we pointed out years ago, we discovered, I did not realize how little of our election law, uh, our election system is actually codified in statute. In other words, you, they have to follow that, that's the law. Uh, not the legislature follows the law, but usually you know, the people that work in the government on the, the bureaucratic side have to follow it. And much of it is policy and regulation, which means they can change it and do what they want. So we are, executing many things in policy and regulation that are free administration to administration to do that don't have to be a statute. So I've been working very closely with them for the last few months on that. And some of that's actually taking place. We're actually starting to go through, for example, which I could never get out of the previous Lieutenant governor and his people and director of the uh, division of elections was, for example, cleaning up or doing something about the almost 200,000 Alaskans data that was um, compromised in those two data hacks. So that's happening now. They're actually going through and putting sideboards and watermarks on that to to highlight those people and make sure that somebody doesn't take their information and use it you know, in a malicious way. Um, we have some new people in place, um, which is an interesting thing because sometimes when you get new people, you can get a new direction. We're working on whether we should stay in the Eric system, for example, because I've told them I don't believe it's valid to be in that system anymore for a number of reasons. Um, and everybody always wants to point out the press was you might have seen a few weeks ago, the press got all spun up about Carol Beecher as the new director because she was a Republican. I'm like, well, the previous director was far left. And you never said a word about that. Right. So that gives us some new direction and some fresh, uh, you know, a fresh breath of air, if you will, somebody that wants to take a fresh look at it and is willing to do so uh and then the last point on that is that senator kawasaki who took over state affairs um now that i'm no longer in that position um is we've been working with him since almost the beginning of the session on another bipartisan bill like chris tuck and i did from the house over the last year and a half and we're working on another version of that and we had a meeting a few weeks ago where we kind of looked at all those core things in the middle that everybody agrees on that need to be done like voter roll cleanup, like cybersecurity, like ballot tracking. And we're hoping that we will be able to chaff off all the stuff on the outside that people on the left want that are going to be mad they didn't get. People on the right want they're going to be mad they didn't get. But those things aren't going to make it through. But there are a core number of issues, Mike, that people in the, that we go, yeah, those need to happen. And everybody agrees. Um, and so we're working on that. And then once we get that done, we're hoping to go to our house friends and see If we can push a bipartisan bill through and then get that done, we'd like to get it done before the end of the session. That's a pretty, you know, pretty big lift in the next five weeks. We'll see. Um, The judicial selection I'm continuing to hammer away on. I've got folks in the House that are working it. So that's at least not going to be completely stopped. But of course, I got one hearing on the Senate and that's dead. So that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, we are looking at a small bill. To kind of look at, it's almost the Mary Fault Bill um, for involuntary commitment when that happened to her a while back. Trying to close up a loophole on that uh, to force the judiciary not that the judiciary did, did anything wrong because they didn't in that case, this was, you know, the troopers made the mistake that the family member did what they did. This is
1: the principle uh, that this is the principle out of the Matsu that had, was almost involuntarily committed. Right. Uh, there's
2: a loophole that allows anybody to do that. And we're cleaning We're going to try to clean that up with a, a small statutory change uh, to make sure that somebody cannot be involuntarily committed again without all the appropriate due process. Right. And that's, That's kind of the big stuff, Mike. Anything else I'm working on behind closed doors, I'll keep quiet, you know, because you're not going to, you know, talk about all of it and who I'm working with. But the bottom line is we're not just sitting around doing nothing. We're doing our best to coordinate with the other folks outside of the Senate. And, Mike, I just, I am, like I said, I'll I'll end how I started. I'm glad that I am not a part of this tax and spend Senate coalition because that's what it is, my friend. This Senate is going to drive us into the ground on um, spending money and forcing taxes. And the first tax is going to be just take the dividend, of course. Somebody I saw comments and I, I usually kind of ignore them but somebody asked about the blight tax and I'll just say that we briefly what it is is that what we what the Senate did yesterday and of course I voted no on it um, but we got rolled like 6 to you know 7 you know whatever 6 to 13 or something and it is if a city municipality whatever decides that um and they have to make the regulations for it but this essentially now lets them do it like other states have they can increase the taxes on a property they consider blighted or a somebody's not repairing it or it's in disrepair they can increase the taxes by up to 50 percent on that property so a 50 percent right. increase in their taxes and hammer that person which of course is going to go right to the people that can't afford to do it you know in a lot of cases and um and you know how these things can be abused. Mike's just another tax. Right. That's what I said, tax and spend Senate. It's another tax, and they passed it. And yeah. there'll be more coming. So you just watch. Just watch. Well, We'll big, see.
1: Yeah, the big problem is, is that it does not define what blight is in statute. That leaves it up to the interpretation of uh, any assembly or city council or things like that's that. It's, it's That's the main have, problem. Now, but, yeah. given
2: them, you've given them the gateway, like a gateway drug, to go on later and do whatever. Because that's the word salad that somebody in here uses a lot. <laughs> Yesterday, oh no, it's going to be fine. It's got all these protections in it. No, it doesn't. Because once you pass it, it's just like legislative intent. Then the city councils and the assemblies, God help you with what they're going to do. Yeah. Because they'll just, we do this, that, and the other. The legislature is never going to look at it again. Yeah. We're going to this off, and, and cities will do all kinds of stuff with it. So there you go. There's just another tax passed by the Alaska State Senate.
1: Yeah. Let's go back real quick here to the Division of Elections because one of the things that you were fighting out with the previous administration, um, previous lieutenant governor, was this uh, reporting and the um, uh, the uh, office of uh, OMB's report. Uh, are you going to be able to get that report finally now, do you think? Is that uh, coming your way? Are we going to be able to see what was discovered by OMB when they did the investigation, or what's what's happening there?
2: There are still people from the previous administration, Mike, that are around. Those people are still influencing is the best way to say it. I think the new people that are here. And so the battle continues on trying to get that little report that was produced um, for public consumption that Commissioner Chewbacca was brought to Alaska specifically to do, completed and briefed it in July of 2020. I have put in the request for the email showing that that is in fact the case because I continue to be told Well, it wasn't made for the public consumption. Commissioner, former Commissioner Shabaka has Mm -hmm. told me, period dot, no equivocation whatsoever, that that report was made for public consumption, and the emails prove it. So, no, I don't have the report yet. I cannot definitively say that I will get that report yet. I hope that I do. I want it for the one reason, Mike. At this point, I'm I want to see what those 18 recommendations are uh so that we can make sure that we're correcting things that she had the resources and the ability to look at and see these were the things that need to be done better and see if we're we're hitting those with any legislative changes so long answer to your short question my friend is i don't know yet and i still don't have it in my hands and we're into a new four-year term and we have some new people in place and i'm hoping that The old guard that's still around is going to um, not influence him enough to allow me to get that uh, report. But, you know, Mike, there's still the path of a subpoena, um, getting the emails to prove it and show them that and hope that they won't be caught up in this. So I don't know. That's a long answer, Mike, because I really don't know what to tell you. I've been frustrated for how many, three years now with this? Right. Three and a half years. This should be a no brainer. They should look at me and go, Mike, here it is. Bam, take a look at this. Yep, this is what we did. This is where we screwed up, or this is where we're weak, and this is where we did okay. It's simple. Said it before, Mike. It becomes a scandal when you hide it, because then it seems like you're hiding something. We well, just put it out there for everybody to see. They go, okay, great. Now fix it.
0: Fine. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, like you said, you got a copy of the report that had almost everything redacted from it. Um, uh, here's the thing. The buck stops at the top of the chain. And uh, Nancy Dalstrom is the lieutenant governor. She should have the authority to release it. Uh, she should be able to override any bureaucrat that's down there in the division of elections, especially with emails saying that it was supposed to be for public consumption. So maybe we need to be making some calls to uh, Dalstrom's office and saying, hey, we need uh, to see this report that was created and has been there since 2020 and nobody wants to release. It'll be interesting to see what the report actually says, because you'll see who was trying to protect what? I think based on the information that's in there, but uh, I mean, we got to find a way to get this information out there. They did the report; we need to see it. We paid to have it done. We should ha- we should have access to it.
2: Well, I, I hope I hope Lieutenant Governor Dolstrom will. We haven't had a lot of direct conversations about that specifically yet. Frankly, Mike, I'm just trying to move on the issues that we already knew that we through research um, in the last you know five years of work on this that that need to be done. Um, she is aware of those things. We've discussed it briefly. I haven't made it too much of a point yet. I'm trying to let her get settled in, and, and we've got a new division of elections director. So um, we've had a couple meetings. At some point, uh, you know, and plus, I'm trying to get emails back uh, to show this as proof that um, they were being very dishonest with us over the last few years about you know the the point of that, because the commissioner was very clear that. Um, the emails would prove that that was for public consumption. And we've had the previous lieutenant governor come out flatly and say that it was not for public consumption.
0: Right. So right.
2: somebody tell the truth, my friend, which means somebody's lying and I don't, I don't do well um, with lies. So if I can get the emails, we'll see where it goes.
1: All right. State Senator Mike Schauer, our guest, going to continue here in just a moment. The Michael Duke show, common sense, liberty-based free thinking radio, back with more Senator Shower right after this.
0: Listened to by more staffers in Juno than any other show. Because their bosses told them to. And after what they just heard, oh man, they're going to be pissed. You're a bad, bad man. The Michael Duke Show.
1: Okay. Uh, we're back. Live commercial break. Bad, bad man is here with us. Uh, trying to tell us all about Look at that. Okay holy cow right. that's a, a coffee, coffee that's a coffee tankard that's uh that's the way to drink some.
2: put it with the uh the parallax where it looks bigger so you do it like this you yeah, go, oh exactly. my gosh that's a massive cup of coffee <laughs> look at how
1: big that is and then you spill it on your keyboard oh god <laughs> it's all good i'd have a valid excuse for not showing up well that's true that's true uh I uh, hate my computer mike i can't help it sorry i don't i just don't hate my computer Um. I, you covered a couple of things. When I come back, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the pay increase because uh, uh, that's a interesting, it's interesting to see. And some of the things that I'm hearing down there from other little birdies in Juneau, um, I'll get your, I'll get your hot take on it. And we'll, we'll see what you uh, have to say from that. But I want to go back to this blight tax thing for a second, because I had a full on rant about this the other day. Um, <clears throat> having served on a borough assembly and we had over the course of the five or six years that I was on the assembly, um, there was, uh, several times where people would come in and they were complaining about, uh, junkyards, right? That was the, that was the big thing. Junkyards, these properties where people brought, wrecked cars, and they did whatever they wanted to do on it. Ironically enough, though, it was funny because most of these times people had moved into the neighborhoods knowing that the junkyards were there and only wanted the government to come in after the fact and then clean up because they would appreciate their property values, et cetera. I could see the detrimental effect that this blight amendment could have, especially since there is no statutory definition of what blight. They're going to leave it up to each community as to what it is. and that is. It's terrifying to put that in. And, and we were just talking with J.D. Tuccioli about uh, decentralization and how states are telling communities how to live and things like that. And so, to one point, I agree that each community should kind of have its own have its own um, say in what's going on. But I am terrified at this point to give bureaucrats and elected officials any more power over our private property rights than they have already. Um, I can see this being weaponized. I can see it being weaponized. Um, It's a a problem. Yeah, Mike, look, this came for Senator
2: Dunbar. Far-left progressive, off the Anchorage Assembly, wildly far-left assembly. Is it any surprise that a guy from Anchorage who's a far-left progressive is going to put in another tax? Is it any surprise that a tax-and-spend left-of-Center Alaska Senate coalition— controlled by Democrats is going to be a tax and spend Senate. Is it any surprise that a guy that came from Anchorage with a city that almost makes Berkeley look moderate, that wants to be able to get more money into their hands to do all their social programs and the homeless and everything else they're doing? Of course they're going to go after anything they can. That's the point. Yesterday was, oh, this is going to help with economic development. This is going to make the city a better place to live. No, it's not. It's going to take more money from the very people that are probably in some cases struggling to make that property you know, good because their their business was hammered because of COVID policies by the very same progressive assembly or the high taxes from that very same assembly or the homeless problems created by that very same left wing, you know, assembly. And now they're going to come after more taxes from the very businesses, right? Are there some businesses, Mike, that leave all the junk cars in the yard or that um, don't take care of property? That, Of course there are, but This is not the way to do it, is to create another avenue for government to come after you for more money, for more taxes. The right avenue would be to pass some kind of, uh, you know, codify something in statute that says if your property is left in disrepair for six months or 12 months or whatever, and you get, you know, three warnings, then, you know, the city's going to come back and it's going to levy a fine on you or something. You know what I mean? Where you can individually target the, the bad actors with something that is. Again, that's why you have criminal law, right? Right. You know. So, uh, okay, everybody can't commit murder. But this is law law.
1: this is already something that's available at the local level, though. I mean, this Correct. is something. Why is the state getting involved in something like this when it's already something that's available at the local? Lo- that's my bigger question. Uh, in, oh,
2: in there's the, the question right there.
1: So again, decentralization. Uh, no reason to give them more arrows for their quiver as far as this goes. All right. Uh, Mike Shower, our guest. The Michael Duke Show continues. Uh, we're going to kick it off right here. Make sure you like and share, like and follow. Do all the things. Here we go. Continuing now with State Senator Mike Schauer on the Michael Duke Show. Uh Mike, I want to talk a bit about I want to talk a bit about tone deafness. Somebody being unable to read the room. Um, we are in a state that's still suffering. We were in a recession before we went into COVID. We're still struggling. We've obviously got huge fiscal problems in the state budget and have had and and they're just they're not getting any better. They're getting worse. And yet we've got a legislature that rejects the suggestions of the uh, of the compensation board because and it was quoted in the newspaper as saying, I don't see a race for legislators in there, so I'm not going to vote for it. And then, of course, the whole board gets. Replaced and wiped out in a matter of hours and the next day they come up with a new presentation increasing legislators pay by 67% um, and making sure you know legislators now make up to with per diem and everything else make up to $125,000, dollars a year. And that just seems very, very tone deaf. And then I hear the inklings about people saying, well, yeah, there's members of the Senate, especially who've been there for years that want that to go up because they're getting ready to retire and they want that top three year thing because they're on the they're on the they're in the purse system and they want that top three year thing so they can get a good, healthy retirement. Um, And it's this kind of self-interest that we're and I'm talking about people like Gary Stevens uh, in this specifically um which is the name that's been bandied around to me as one of the ones the prime movers and shakers behind this what are your thoughts on this increase the whole showdown the way it went down the refusal of the first one the removal of the board the you know all this other kind of stuff what are your thoughts on this and kind of the tone deafness of it
2: well i don't know all the ins and outs of what happened with the board wasn't part of it haven't specifically dove into that because it got my hands full with all the other stuff as far as Strangely, judicial election, working with the House, et cetera, but it doesn't feel right how that happened. If anything, even if it was going to happen anyways, Mike, it probably shouldn't have happened at the timing with the timing that it happened. It certainly didn't look um, good to to, uh, for a board to be let go and then come back with the answer somebody wants um, legislative or otherwise. So it definitely, you know, um, kind of has that uh, public relations appearance that didn't didn't seem to go over very well. I'll give you that one for sure. As far as individual legislators, what they're doing with this, I have no idea because they're not talking about it. And my guess is they don't want to talk about it because they probably do know, you know, you say tone deaf by just doing it anyways. But they're not necessarily you know, naive to what's taking place or how that's going to go across with the public or, or in the media. So they're probably not talking about it because they don't want to. Right. I will tell you this, Mike, from my perspective, I have consistently, you know this, I've been in your program for five plus years now, six years. I have always um, been opposed to the per diem, the the rate at which we get that per diem. It ends up being almost $9,000 a month. And on top of that, it is tax free. $36,000 tax free for four months of work is a pretty good gig if you can get it. You add $50,400 of regular pay over the year, which doesn't bother me because that's taxable, that's normal income. Um, so about a year and a half ago, whatever it was, they had another proposal that came up that we actually voted down. And in that proposal, I had an amendment. I I tried to change it, which actually would have reduced the pay by about $10,000 a year. I'm not opposed to a slightly higher pay increase, Mike, and I'm talking regular pay because it is taxable. It is income. It covers you for the whole year. It could help if it was a reasonable amount, and I don't know what that is. It's fifty thousand four hundred dollars today per year. I think they were suggesting eighty four thousand. That might be a little high in my my opinion, but something that would allow a professional that wants to work and do this job, especially you know forties and fifties when you're in the high earning years. I've I've been very clear here. This is a big hit to me income wise. You know, airline pilots make pretty good money. I give up four or five months of that every year. That's not a small income hit when I'm in my high earning years, which is all I've got. You know, a few years left of earnings before I'm I'm forced to retire. So a a a pay rate that is reasonable to not make people um, avoid this job in their hiring years is good because we want to try to get good people in this job. Right, if you can. At the same time, you know, nine thousand dollars a month of per diem is way above the normal rate, and that is excessive to me. So I had suggested we could leave the pay where it was or even increase the normal pay slightly and you reduce the per diem um, that got shot down, of course. And the other suggestion, I've heard a couple of Rob Myers, Senator Myers has one I thought it's a good idea. He's like, well, just pay everything in the four months and be done with it. Just put the pay right up front for whatever that rate's going to be and then be done and you know not the rest of the month if we come back for a special session pay it then you know for the per diem because you gotta right and when you are here you gotta pay for a hotel or how you know i said this is almost three thousand dollars a month for this small place for him because all you can find in Juno, or more if you're going to get a hotel but i will tell you mike another option that i would suggest if we did this and I'll, i'll put this in depending on how this battle goes is do it like the federal government does you have a cap for your housing right let's say it's you call it 3000 a month because that's probably not unreasonable for Juno based on costs and you turn in your receipts and you can get paid up to that cap if you go over that cap it's out of pocket if it's a couple hundred bucks less great lucky you that 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 would be fine but you get your your lodging paid for up to a cap and then you get like 70 bucks a day or whatever the, the federal rate is you know that'd be a couple thousand dollars a month for food because that's what it's for right food gas etc now you're talking probably 5000ish a month which actually would cover cost, of living here doing the job but not be a big money maker. I think that's that's reasonable Mike based because you don't it shouldn't come out of pocket to have to come serve especially cuz you got to fly down to Juno for 57 different legislators to get here. But at the same time it shouldn't be something that becomes like a prize where people go I want that job man I'm going to get $123,000 for 4 months of work. Woohoo. I'm like yeah that's a pretty good gig if you can get it too. So I have never supported where they how we are paid and how it works out i think we can do a lot better and i think we should follow without reinventing the will things like how the federal government does it for its employees like the military did and i think the people would be okay with that because the people i don't believe are going to demand you to make money um you know uh or to force you to take money out of your pocket to do this job but i think the people also understand that when the average income of alaskans is about 77 dollars dollars a year And you could make $123,000 for what's really generally four months of hard work, you know, of actual, you know, combined work probably doesn't sit well, my friend, which it doesn't because you wouldn't be complaining about talking about the radio if it was. And by the way, one last point, Michelle was showing me her phone. She's like, move us to the road system.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, what about the, le- yeah, again, move the legislature onto the road system, move the session, not the Capitol, just the session onto the road system. And you wouldn't have a $3,000 one room, one bedroom apartment that you'd have to deal with. You'd have a lot different. Thirty-three. Yeah.
2: 33 of the 60 legislators live within 50 miles of either Wasilla or I mean, the Matsu or Anchorage as the location of the session, 33 of the 60 would not get the hyperdim. Wouldn't need it first of all and wouldn't get it. Just do the math on what that saves per month alone. Yeah. I won't do it for you, but trust me, brother, it's millions of dollars a year on just that alone.
1: Yeah. Thirty-three times uh th- thirty-three times thirty-five thousand. You could start doing the math. That's some real money when you start getting into it.
2: Uh, Plus airline tickets and ferry cost of moving things back and forth, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah, because
1: you get a what, a ten, eight, nine, ten thousand dollar moving budget every year and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's insane. And you'd all be sleeping in your own beds at night. Uh, well, 33 of you would anyway. Why not? I mean, just. It
2: would also entice other people that otherwise can't afford to as professionals go back and forth to Juno or be there for four months, plus special sessions we seem to be do all the time now. There's other people that would want to serve that I think would. I've talked to some. They go, well, yeah, if this was on the road system, if it was, you know, Anchorage, Matthew, somewhere where I could get to, I would serve. But they're like, I can't afford to go to, you know, Juno for four months out of the year or five months or six months. So I, there's a lot of positives to moving the session to the road system, Mike. Not just money, but efficiencies, um, access of the people. I, I still think that is a better answer for us. Longer. I've never suggested, I've stopped a long time ago, you know that, suggesting we move the capital. We don't need to move the capital. Let the capital stay in Juneau. It's the historic capital, it's fine. Let most of the people that work here on the bureaucracy side do all that. Is fine. The session is a temporary thing every year that could move and has moved around and met elsewhere anyways. That's not something that needs to be tied to this. All of our support services can be done virtually, et cetera. So it's, anyways, it's a, it's a, still probably a pipe dream because the way the Senate is going, the way the legislature in general is going, is further to the left, and they like the little party down here where you're hidden away from everybody, and uh, especially the the ones that have been around longer. They do, they are really reticent to give up that, uh, the 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 walled fenced in compound of Juno. Oh yeah. That's what it is because you can't get to it cheaply so,
1: yeah no it's the bubble they like being in the bubble yeah they like they like being out of the public eye in that way they like being able to control who can come in and who who could see them and who could talk to them and doing all that kind of stuff it's it's it's, just,
2: it's it's just what it's been and it's a comfortable thing for them and stepping outside your comfort zone is hard Mike uh for people and um you know I think some of the newer younger legislators might be okay with that that if they're here but you know those that have been around a while they are really you know they'd plant the flag and die on that hill as they have so before
1: well i'd okay. love it i'd love to see another bill come up i know colleen sullivan leonard carried one and i know that there's there's been um, various attempts over the last uh, few years to try and get that session moved i wish we could get something up and off of that all right well before we get started on something else i'm going to give uh, senator shower the last segment to do with as he please uh pleases we might as well go ahead and uh might as well take the break because we're here so we're going to be back state senator mike shower is our guest uh if you would like to uh join us in the chat room you can it's at facebook.com slash michael duke show slash live you can go there right now and see it and check it out go to my go to my website if you want to join and uh, we can talk about it. We'll be back with more. State Senator Mike Schauer, our guest, The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio.
0: broadcasting live through a series of tubes allowing all of these uh, entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the, on the, the internet well it's kind of hard to explain sorry streaming live every weekday morning on facebook live and show.com
1: okay uh senator shower uh with us right now i, I you know Uh, I know that there's just a huge amount of pushback on that. They like that. They like being sheltered. They like the centralization of power in a place where they can control the narrative and who's there and everything else. Um, It's you know, but eventually it's going to have to move to it, it. Eventually, the session is going to have to move to a place where most of the people can participate. Most of the public can climb into a car and for seventy dollars in gas, can drive around back and forth and do that instead of having to spend two or three thousand bucks to fly down there to talk to people. Um, I, I think eventually it has to happen, but it's it's one of the reasons why it's on the charter of changes because I think it's one of the biggest things that we need to do.
2: Well, you, I mean, think of those things, Mike. It's kind of like how they're trying to silence uh, legislators right now. They're not trying to silence Democrats. They're not trying to silence progressives or far leftists. They're only trying to silence conservatives. How are they doing it? Southern Poverty Law Center, which has been designated a domestic terrorist organization by the U.S. federal government in the past, uh, has that offshoot of the Northern Justice Project, which is pro bono, helping certain citizens out there that are well on the left spectrum. Many of them are trolls online all the time um, on just the conservative sites, right, on the conservative legislative sites. So we're seeing all these conservative legislators get sued um, to shut up their social media. Now, why would that be, Mike? Why would that be? Because ultimately, what do they want to do? Do you see the Legislative Council dominated by the old guard, dominated by Democrats and those that are moderate at best? Um, Do you see Ledge Council doing anything to help legislators keep those accounts open so they can communicate more openly and freely with the people? No. Their answer was, well, just don't have one then. Or you're on your own if you do and you get sued. I guarantee you if they were suing certain older legislators that have been around a long time or they were suing Democrats, there would be an uproar right now in the Capitol. We need to do something about this and protect each other and we need to spend state resources. But they're not doing that, Mike, because it's not them. It's the very ones they want silence. They don't want shining the light about what's going on Juno. Juneau. Those are the ones they're allowing to be sued and attacked um, because they want to shut down. You just said the key thing. They're in the castle down here in Juneau. And they don't want the spotlight being shown. And guess what? Being able to get on the radio, which so far they haven't been able to stop, and social media, um, we're able to go out and spread the word on what's happening and show people things down here. And if they can shut us up, guess who controls the narrative again? They do, because the press is pretty much going to report on what they tell them to, because the press wants access. And if you had a press person that was reporting on all the other things they don't want to report, you know what they do? They shut them down. They don't talk to them. They don't give them access. They don't give them a press pass there you go brother a lot of this is about information flow um and the voice and so um staying in juno limits that and helps them control the narrative the more they can hammer the more conservative legislators that have a louder voice on social media radio the more they can shut us down the more control they have ultimately mike you always got to ask this is back to weapon school for me right teaching at top gun back in the day. It's like you always ask the question why why is something happening it's not you know the how and all the things people see and often get frustrated ask the base question the base question is why motivation why is that happening why are they doing that what's their ultimate end goal and the ultimate end goal about much of this is continuing to have the narrative control of the narrative here in juno and not letting anybody else capture the narrative or change the narrative or blunt the narrative I had a lady come down yesterday in the office and we were we were interviewed for an hour about ranked choice voting. She's working up with some national group on it. I think they're opposed or they're opposed to the repeal of it. In other words, they want ranked choice voting across the nation. But be that as it may, I was talking to her and I said, look at this ultimately from a ranked choice voting perspective. I said, why? I asked her, why are they spending so much money to save ranked choice voting? Because I said, here's the why behind it. If Alaska is the cheap date, if they can keep it in Alaska. They can tell the rest of the country how great it is and how they should implement it in Nevada and California and everywhere else. If the people of Alaska, which I believe they would, if it's on the initiative, repeal it, that blunts their narrative and all the money they spent. All of a sudden, people, the rest, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought this was a really good thing, but Alaskans just repealed it. So, Mike, it's about controlling the narrative. you got to ask the why. Why are they spending so much money? Why are they doing that? Because they know that it will blunt what's happening in the rest of the nation if Alaskans repeal ranked choice voting. So that's the base question. Always start with why.
1: Yeah. You always have to look at motive. Motive is always the first thing, right? I mean, the motivation for why people do things the way that they do them, Um, which again, harkens me back to the whole pay raise thing on top of it and uh, everything else. Uh, All right. Well, we're going to give you free reign here in the next segment to talk about whatever else you want to talk about. uh, Anything else that uh, you have going on? Um, I, uh, uh, I, I just I just don't know. I mean, right now we're seeing what's coming out of the House, which seems like a fairly uh, I mean, it, it, they, they did what they could on the budget. But I have a feeling that the Senate is going to be stacking and racking stuff in there that we're not even you know ready for. So if you want to talk about that or whatever else. Anyway, <clears throat> we're ready to jump back into it. So uh, hold the line. The uh, Michael Duke show continues. Uh, State Senator Mike Schauer is our guest. And we're going to uh, continue with him and uh, keep continue just uh, to chat away here in just a minute. If you got questions, throw them in the chat room. If I can get to them, I will. And we will talk with uh, Senator Shower. Make sure you like and share, like and follow, subscribe, ring the bell, do all that stuff. Here we go. All right, one final segment this morning for the show. Uh, State Senator Mike Schauer is our guest for the final thoughts on the Shower Hour of Power. Last segment's where I normally just slip the leash and let him talk about whatever he wants to talk about. <clears throat> that could be dangerous, but we're going to do this. We're do- More for my political career than anything yeah, else. Yeah, exactly. More dangerous for him than anything else. All right, well let's uh, let's see what you have to say, Mike. What uh, what else uh, is on your mind? What should we be paying attention to? What, uh, what you know? What do you what do you want to get across this morning in this uh, final segment here?
2: Well, just for a minute or two, then I am going to go and I'm pivot because I know I promised it two weeks ago to do some ejection stories because every once in a while I like to flow some flying stuff into this because it's kind of cool and I know it's different and a lot of people have questions. So I did get one note I wanted and I'm not going to say who it came from, but it said that the uh, this bill for the blight tax didn't actually come from Dunbar. It was from an actual Matsu politician, elected official, um, and also came from a uh, a Politico down in Anchorage on the Republican side. Both both these guys are Republicans. So that's interesting. I'm not going to say names because I don't want to get into that, but um, it didn't apparently come directly from Dunbar. So fascinating that Republicans are working with a Democrat, a far left Democrat, no less, um, to institute another tax. So, that how, how are we doing on that one? Um, so I talked about, uh, let's see, geisel has got the defined benefit plan. That's going to be hundreds of millions. Look at, uh, Senator Tobin has the uh, defined or the uh, school BSA for over a quarter of a billion dollars. The blighted tax is coming in. They got other taxes they're looking at. Um, they're heading our way. If, unless we have a, the good news, Mike, is that unless we see a comprehensive balanced budget um, fiscal plan, the governor has been pretty straightforward that uh, he's not going to allow anything to pass. In other words, he'll veto anything that's not a complete plan. Um, and it's back to that fiscal policy working group It's the part It's the thing that every nobody liked all of it, Mike, and I don't know what else to do to solve this. We're not going to reduce our way out of this with spending, not with this tax and spend Senate, not with the current direction, this legislature um, and somebody's got to be the adult in the room, Mike, and we have to solve this problem. It's the problem they've handed us. I, I'm working with what I've got. Right. Um, this is the Donald Rumsfeld. You go to war with the army, you have not the army you want. Um, and I would rather stem the, you know, uh, this is like triage. <laughs> I'd rather stop the bleeding now and get it over with and, um, you know, enact a fiscal policy that's going to be you know, balance the budget. The key part of that to me is still the spending cap, but you're going to have to do that in the Constitution to make it permanent, just like protecting the permanent fund. Um, and 50-50 is probably the best we're going to do based on the numbers we have. So and that's that needs constitutional protection, brother, both of those. And that's a tough lift. That's 14 and 27. That's a lot. But if the governor will help us and the House seems more on board and we get some Democrats that want to see solutions, too, um, it's possible, especially if the governor will veto anything else that comes through. Because the Senate, really, Mike, the only thing the Senate's pushing right now is spending and taxes. That's it. Um, They're not pushing the rest of the comprehensive fiscal package to protect stuff. So they'll fail just like they have in the past. Um, because they're only pushing basically spending and taxes and the house at least is, you know, like rep Carpenter at least is trying to push the whole fiscal policy. Right. Yes. Taxes were a part of that, a sales tax, I think about a 2% sales tax, but you know, if you don't bring across enough Democrats with that part, you don't get there. We just continue to arbitrarily take the PFD and spend more and why I say that fiscal part of it with those things I don't like that we just mentioned is because the spending cap has to be a part of it. And the spending cap is what would prevent us from getting here More in the future. Um, You know, and you still have to deal with, like I said, 125 million or so every year of increased costs for employees. And within a couple of years, my chief of staff, Naresh, and I were talking about yesterday. Within, you know, about 12 years, Mike, the current GF budget would be taken up by all personnel costs. No services, just personnel costs for state employees. That's before we've increased the BSA. That's before we've increased, you know, gone back to defined benefits for all our state employees. So you see where we are with this, Mike. We're in a very tenuous place. So. Anyways, those are things to look out for and we'll see where it goes. And I'm going to pivot from that to more interesting stories, if that's okay. And okay. we can continue to speak on it. But I, I did promise people and I want to, I want to give you some kind of pivot. So, cause there's some stories you're like, you're just like, oh my goodness. So we got about eight minutes, I think. Right. I can do it.
1: Yeah. About, about. about just under eight minutes.
2: We can, we can do others. So there's five. I specifically know these are people I flew with and worked with and knew well. And i may not get to all five of them but i'll tell you a, a couple of them so first of all there's one and i'm not going to say names because i don't know if they would want their names out but years ago we were uh i was on the tarmac at elmendorf and there was a risk going on and we had a uh f-15 f-16 i know both of them and they they had a mid-air collision up there and the f-16 was able, with the damage this tail went through the nose of the f-15 it was able to go back and land the f-15 the guy that i knew flying that jet said they they had the mid-air collision tail basically chopped off the nose of the f-15 so you think the micro a thousandth of a second you know a couple thousandths of a second off he would have lost his legs the tail would have cut him off but when the the collision happened he's looking out and all of a sudden the bam happens and he looks down and he's looking through his legs and there's the ground thirty five thousand feet below him the tail cut off the nose of the aircraft right in front of his boots how close do you have to be at a thousand miles an hour of closure before losing your legs and he would have died in that, that collision but of course the jet kind of goes out of control he punches out and the parachute lands and you know, he tells me the story later i'm like brother not your day right and you know so crashed an airplane one of them like I said made it back to base the f-15 was was lost up there that was one of those is just the, and that's the thing about a couple of these these ejection stories is how close people came to dying now, i certainly know people that have died and, and crashes and didn't make it out too, plenty of that. But I wanted to talk about just the more positive ones that you're like, boy, it was not that person's day, right? Right. So there's another one, um, and people do know who that was. They've seen the pictures. There was a Thunderbird F-16 that crashed at Mountain Home, uh, Air Force Base, and I know lots of people have seen it because he did the, the split S after takeoff, and he's coming downhill. And you see the pictures from the, t- the control tower. They had it, and you see him in his ejection seat with the rocket motors burning, and you can see the F-16 in the background right before it hits. And there's a the big fireball as it rolls along the ground. Well, I knew really well the guy that was one of the other thunderbirds that did the accident investigation board so we talked later and he told me how it played out if you see the lipstick camera that's looking at him when he's sitting there all you can see is the guy with his dark visor down and his hands are up kind of like this right you one's on the stick one's on the throttle he's got the stick full back the throttles in his left hand and he's got it in full afterburner and so you see you can see his hand come over twice to the center here where the ejection handle is on the seat on the f-16 and then his hand goes back to the throttle, and then it comes back, and he pulls the ejection handle, and out he goes. And the guy that ran the accident investigation board told me he had about a 0.25 second window that he ejected in to survive. And had he pulled the handle the first time he put his hand over there, his downward velocity was so fast that he would have come out. The seat couldn't have overcome it, and he would have smashed in the ground. It would have killed him. Had he delayed more than that 0. 0.25 seconds the second time he put his hand over and pulled the handle, he would have been um, in the fireball, right? Would have impacted the ground in the fireball, he would have died. He punched out with that delay for whatever reason, and he doesn't know why he did it. He just delayed um, in a 0.25 second window that the seat, the velocity of the seat going up almost perfectly matched the velocity of the aircraft coming down. So when he came out, he essentially went across the ground sideways. The parachute came out acted like a drag chute and stopped him. and He hit the ground, rolled, stood up with the fireball in front of them, going, <laughs> not my day, right? That's number two. So here's the third one as we're moving on. So an F-22 crashed at Nellis back in December of 2004. Um, this guy I knew who flew with before at, at the weapons school. And he took off, and the aircraft had a flight control anomaly. It was a, it was a known thing. They were replacing the parts and pieces. He had to turn back in. There's a long story behind it, but the short version is he went back out to the runway to take off. The jet flight controls, the the, the triple redundant flight controls, We're not set in the world for where they are. So when the jet took off and broke ground and the the squat switches from the tires as he went to put the gear up, the jet goes, I don't know where I'm at. So when he's moving the flight controls, just like, you know, it's just loose and doesn't have any idea to to manipulate the flight controls. So as he takes off and breaks ground and starts to pull the nose up, the jet starts to roll to the right. I mean, like, you know, like 30 feet off the ground, he's like, whoa, He, he goes full afterburner and puts the stick hard left. And the jet kind of started then starts a very rapid roll to the left. and he. He can't control it. As the jet starts to roll to the left, he goes full stick, right? And nobody's home. And he's like, so you have a fraction of a second to make the decision. Right. And who wants to crash a 200 million dollar airplane? Right. So but he didn't have any thought of that. So as the jet starts to roll, it gets to about 90 degrees of roll to the left. He's only 90 feet above the ground. Right. Pulls the handle um, and he, he, he clears the, the jet at 97 degrees as it's rolling upside down. And he's so close to the ground he comes out so fast it was like that previous one i described where the, basically the parachute instantly comes out and makes a drag shoot and he literally it's stopping him as he's hitting the ground and rolling across it the f-22 impacted like you know 50 feet 100 feet in front of him big fireball right there so i mean he had you know maybe a tenth of a second if he delayed any further he was dead right on that one not his day he got up with nary a scratch on him just dust from the desert you know on his flight suit Going and watching a, you know, of course, $200 million aircraft burn in front of them, going, oops.
1: Yeah. Um, so that, that's got to put a little blemish on what's going on.
2: <laughs> just, just, that's going to leave a mark. Right. And uh, I'll tell the last one, it might be out of time, but this one's an interesting one too, as they all are in their own way. Cause like I said, these are just examples of guys I've flown with that just, it was not their time. So this guy was flying an F 15. It was a four ship uh, over the Gulf many years ago out of, uh, I believe it was out of Eglin. And it was a 4v4, like four F 15s against four other F 16s, whatever, out over the water. And him and his flight lead, they do the, they take their shots, you know, and they're kind of splitting apart, you know, doing their thing, and they lose sight of each other. And usually you fess up and kind of say, well, they lost sight and didn't see each other. So they had a mid-air. they collided, right? Cause, you know, you lose sight for a bit and you're like, oh, you keep looking, I'll see him, I'll see him, bam, they hit each other. And this particular one, that that one, the other F-15, like the first story, was able to recover and fly back home and land with damage. But this guy's aircraft was damaged beyond repair. So the jet kind of starts doing, you know, it goes out of control. He's like, "Whoa!" He pulls the handle, but he's like thirty-five thousand feet, and the parachute and the seat will not open until roughly fourteen thousand feet because you don't want to be sitting up there at thirty-five thousand feet taking a minute per thousand feet to descend because it's like minus sixty degrees. You'll freeze to death, right? So the seat will fall the air until it hits that fourteen thousand, the air gets warmer closer to the ground. Then it will separate, and the parachute will come out, etc. So he's in his seat riding this thing from thirty-five thousand feet to fourteen, going, "Oh my God!" He's actually because it's got a little drag chute to keep it stable. He's just watching himself get closer and closer to the water, riding his seat down for twenty-something thousand feet. You know, at you know, two hundred miles an hour, whatever it is, just going, "Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God!" And he's looking down, he's like, the water started to get awful close. And then of course, all of a sudden the seat separates, boom, big parachute comes up, you know, and he watches his seat go whoosh, splash in the water, you know, three miles below him. And he looks up parachute, he's like, okay, I'm good. Raft's down there below him on the string test. He's like, all right, everything's fine. And he's kind of thinking, okay, I'm gonna make it, I'm good. And then the first part of the F-15 goes by. <laughs> he's like because the airplanes above him in pieces right, right. And wind and canopy and engines and there's all this stuff and he's like he's looking up and here comes all this stuff he's like oh my God I'm gonna die it's gonna hit me every part of that airplane went around him and didn't hit him but right there and all these parts of pieces, and he's watching it all of it just go by him and not hit his parachute and take him out and all that lands right around where he goes and there's big bubbles in the water and he lands right smack in the middle of that hops in his raft you know an hour later uh, picked up, you know, by the rescue guys and going, I can't believe I'm alive. Not,
1: not, his, it was not his day to die. That was not what it is. Day. Eject, I eject, have more eject. Myself,
2: but they, I'd run out of time because there's more stories. Yeah. But I just thought people would be like got, you know, got a little got to go.
1: All right. Mike shower, our guest, the Michael Duke show. Thanks for coming on folks. We'll see you tomorrow for firearms Friday. Have a great day. you imagine ringing all that stuff around you, making the perfect target? I've got to land in the middle. I've got to land in the middle. I've got to land in the middle. <laughs> I just, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that split, like you say, the split second things. And, you know, I know that losing an aircraft is probably a blemish on your, unless it's obviously mechanical failure. Probably, not. you know, not good for your career. Uh, having to have that flash through your mind at the same time as you're trying to decide if it's time to punch out or not has got to be. Man, that's got to be one of the toughest choices ever in a split second.
2: I, I will tell you, talking to the guys that have done it, Mike, that they actually, there was no time to decide. They tell you that, train you that way, and every single one of them made the decision without thinking about it. I think because if you, if this is the Top Gun thing. I, you know, I didn't have time to think up there. If you think you're dead, you know, blah, 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 you know, whatever, that's Hollywood. But the reality is when the time comes, you got to pull the handle or, <clears throat> or you're going to die. You There's no time. And every one of those guys made the unconscious decision to eject before they got there, which I think goes through all of our minds in training and not one of them um, even flinched when the time came. So I hear what you're saying. I think that what you're saying happens after the event, when you go, Oh my God, I crashed a $200 dollars airplane. You know what's going to happen to make every one of those guys, I think moved up by the way in their career standard. Right. Um, But uh, I think the decision is made well ahead of time. If you wait and think about what you're doing, you'll probably die. Because yeah. there's no time to make that decision. <laughs> so,
1: well, and that's anyway. the and that's the positive of the training and making that decision before you entered the aircraft. At that point, I mean, that's really what it's about. You've made, you know, you've kind of, you've kind of decided and and resigned yourself to the fact that that may happen and you have to do it. And I guess that's it. The training that's what that's what the training's for, kicking it in and uh, you know more invested in the pilot than in the aircraft. At that point, you can't you can replace the plane pretty easily, pilot not so much. So, Well,
2: I think voting, Mike, you probably should have your mind up before you get to the floor and not stare at what everybody else is going to do and count the votes to see if you can get away with it before you vote. You kind of ought to be like, the, I know where I'm voting. Bam, hit the button before everybody else even votes. That's somebody that's confident in their vote, knows what they're doing, not playing politics. But we don't always see that.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, we're, it's always true. It's fascinating stories, though. I mean, you should write a book. You should write a book. Titled Ejected, Ejected. ejected. Yeah, that'll be it. Uh, Mike Shower, our guest for today. Thank you, my friend, for coming on board. It's good to see you. Uh, are we doing this next week or? Wednesday,
2: I hope. <laughs>
1: yes. I'll just start calling you at midnight and making sure there that you're going to be ready to go. Call me about 8
2: o'clock tonight before to remind me, and I'll make sure I'm there this time.
1: Yeah. I should know this It'll now. be good. All right. Well, Mike Shower, our guest. Thank you, my friend. Good to talk with you all right we'll see you later all right folks we're out of time for today we got more coming up uh tomorrow with firearms friday appreciate you coming on board and joining us we will see you tomorrow have a great day